Hello again. Thank you. <laughs> right back at you. Let me sort of get set up here. Just take a second. All right, I'm ready to go. Turn to Luke chapter 1 if you have your Bibles or your apps. If you don't, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you, and um, that would be helpful. We're going to look at two births that are uh, foretold uh, this morning. We're actually going to go through 40 verses but and then uh, end with some application, some challenging application. Uh, and I want to just set it up now just by telling you that it's interesting. I've, I have had two careers in my life. The second career is that of a pastor. I've spent a number of years in the retail business, and it's, I, it just, it's interesting to me. I found that one of my challenges as a pastor is that I tend to struggle with Christmas. It's one of the great uh, ironies, and, and please don't get me wrong. There are things that I really love about Christmas. For instance, the most important thing to love about Christmas, of course, is that uh, Jesus forsook his glory and was willing to come here to earth as the incarnate God to save his people, and, and for that, I, I am very thankful, and I, and I love that part of Christmas, and I also appreciate that my daughters don't have school during this time and we get to just spend a little bit of time together as a family. We don't get that very much because we're all so busy and Shelby's away in Chicago. And uh, I also, uh, ironically, I love Christmas Eve church services. I do like those, even though now I actually have to work at them. But even so, I still love them. They're, they're celebratory and festive and, and fun. I like the candle thing very much. And then, of course, uh, I love Christmassy food. Who doesn't? Um, except for fruitcakes, not into that. But I love Super Bowl and Christmas food. That's, that's always very good. But I've never been a fan of how life speeds up during Christmas. Never been a fan of that. E- even, even before I was a Christian, I didn't even like that. I've always thought that it should slow down this time of year. It never, we've never seemed to get, uh, get that right, it seems as though. Uh, I've also never been a fa- fan of how it seems as though we feel like we have to find meaning in everything we do this time of year, that we're just running from thing to thing to thing, trying to find meaning, and how seldom many of us are willing to just slow down and, and find that meaning in Jesus. I mean, ostensibly, he is the reason that we're doing everything that we're doing uh, this time of year. Yet there is a pallor of discontent that almost always accompanies this time of year. People talk about it, we feel it, we know it, we, we are aggravated about it in our own lives. We just chase and chase and chase and chase. And then in the end, we're kind of hung over. And not really from drinking, but just from all the chasing. I know a few of you, maybe something else, but just the chasing. We are discontent. And we don't seem to know how to fix that. Christmas time often just brings that to the surface. And in fact, um, there's research that demonstrates that it does every year. There's a number of studies over the years have tried to find out what are the most stressful things that happen to people in their lives. And the top five is always the same. So the top five stressors that we face in life, number one, the death of a loved one, number two, a divorce of some sort, a breach of a, uh, of a main relationship in our lives. Number three, moving. Like, you know, when you move from a house to a house or apartment to a house or a house to apartment or whatever it is, apartment to apartment, moving is no fun. Uh, job loss is another one. And then, and then on that list of top five things that are most stressful to us, 
are the holidays, the holiday season. That's the one that we know is going to occur every year no matter what. How many of you have ever lost a job and had to move during Christmas time? That, I mean, that you're just a mess in the midst of that, okay? So Christmas can be, it can actually be depressing. It can bring a lot of this stuff to the surface. Notice how slowly and soothingly I'm speaking this morning. I'm just trying to get you to slow down. I'll get riled up later, don't you worry. And, and then this year it seems worse because I think there's even more on our minds this year. There's the, the tragedy of the, of the Connecticut school shooting. I mean, that's, we are still talking about that and, and trying to sort through that. Uh, there's the looming fiscal cliff. Some of you are like, don't even know what that entails or what it means, and it's just a bunch of politicians speaking past each other. Amen, true, yes. But, you know, you don't know if we're going to get pushed off the cliff, dragged off the cliff, fall off the cliff, or if somebody's going to restrain us and save us for some other cliff some other time. We don't, we don't know. We've also, I know we've had war and violence in the Middle East for thousands of years, but right now the tensions seem particularly high, higher than they've been in a long time. In many ways, I've never been more ready for Jesus to come, which is really what the season of Advent is about in the first place. It's about waiting for Jesus. So I guess from my perspective anywhere I'm, uh, anyway, I'm right where I need to be. Advent is the season that runs from the fourth Sunday before Christmas until the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Literally, the word Advent means coming. And this coming is twofold. We, we celebrate the coming of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, the birth of the Savior into the world some 2,100 years ago. But there's also uh, a second way that we understand Advent. It is also a season that reminds us to be in preparation for the second coming of Jesus, the day he's going to usher in the finality of the kingdom of God. So Advent is also a reminder that we are to wait, that we are to wait. And it's through that, through that lens that I want to look at this passage of Scripture in Luke 1 this morning, and then at the end of it, I want to talk about three things that Advent really should be bringing to the forefront in our lives that we really struggle with. We're going to talk about waiting, repentance, and contentment. Are you excited? I am. Let's dive in. Here we go. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start with, with verse 5. Here's the first birth that is foretold. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So you look at verse 5, and you see that both Elizabeth and Zechariah were from the line of priests. And so that's going to be their lot in life. That's, that's pretty much... Zechariah's uh, vocation has been chosen for him by virtue of what he was born into. And then verse 6 talks about what religious studs both Zechariah and Elizabeth were. They, they were righteous and they walked blamelessly. And, and you can't help but read that, if, especially in the context of, of like Romans chapter 3 where Paul says everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God and no one is righteous, no not one, no one does good. And you begin to wonder, does this mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless and the answer is no, it doesn't mean that at all. So what does it mean that they were righteous and they walked blamelessly? Well, commentators say, say that it's really a combination of two things. Number one, they're, they're, they had a pure and passionate desire to stay away from sin, from sin that, was, that was really over and above 
even other people who know God. It was just, there was a level of passion about wanting to stay away from sin that, that, that they exhibited in their lives. And then when they did sin, which everybody inevitably does, when they did, they did everything that the law required in order to make sure that that was taken care of. And so they were righteous and they walked blamelessly in all of the commandments. And yet even though they are ta- uh, called righteous and, and that they walk blamelessly, verse 7 should get our attention They were righteous, and yet they suffered. They were righteous, and they walked blamelessly, and and yet they were suffering. They had no children. In their cultural context, this was considered a curse. This was anathema. Elizabeth would not be able to go out into public without having people talk about her and, and, and wonder what it is that she had done wrong. It is true. Often, our sin is what precipitates our suffering. We recognize that the consequence of many of our sins uh, is that we're going to have to put up with some stuff. And we we try to avoid it, we try to mitigate it, we try to get out of it, we try to rationalize by it. But the reality is is that we know that if we make bad decisions, we're going to probably end up suffering as a result. I'm going to cite a movie again. I know some of you love this and some of you are like, oh, come on, Uh, just take me a second, okay. In Godfather 3... In Godfather 3, there's a poignant scene, really, where Michael Corleone, who the whole Godfather trilogy is really about, uh, he's in Rome, and he goes to the Vatican, and and he's meeting with a cardinal, and and this cardinal is eventually going to be the next pope. And they're walking and talking, and the cardinal asked Michael, he said, when was the last time you confessed your sin? And he said, oh, it's been decades. It's been decades. And he said, well, why not right now? Why don't you confess your sin? So Michael said, okay, and he sat down, and he started to confess his sin. And he confessed it. I mean, he confessed that he had his brother assassinated. He confessed to the many men that he had participated in, in their deaths. And, and, and as he was confessing his sin, he began to break down, and he was destroyed, and he was wrecked, and he was distraught. And he actually began to weep, and you could see that physically he was thoroughly messed up. And the cardinal walks over to him at that point and puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says, it is proper that you suffer for your sin is grievous. And so we understand, the world understands that even though we try not to suffer as a result of our own sin, we will eventually suffer. That's just the way it it goes. But what we don't often understand, what we don't understand well, what we wrestle to come to grips with is the fact that, that very often the righteous suffer, people who walk blamelessly before God. Almost everyone has this understanding, this little deal that they've made in their own minds that, that, that if, if, you, if you behave well, you're not going to suffer. God's going to in turn treat you the way you want to be treated. But that's just not true. The problem is we live in a fallen and a corrupt world where sin is rampant, sin against us, uh, sin in general, and as a result, suffering becomes a way of life for everybody because we're all in the mix together. Even when we take care of our business, we are going to have trials and challenges and you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and even though they don't like it they don't like that they suffer with Elizabeth's barrenness we also recognize that they accept it and they are content in spite of their unpleasant circumstances they live within it and they wait well verses 8 through 10 now while he was serving Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Uh, The way this worked is there were different divisions 
of, of the priestly tribe that would take care of the temple on certain weeks. And there were 24 of these divisions, and so generally speaking, you'd have two weeks out of the year when you had to be at the temple all week long. And, and it was called your week of waiting. You were there to serve, and you were there to wait on God and, and do all this. And, and twice a day, they would go in, and they would burn incense, an offering of incense to God, a tribute to God, a way of honoring God. And the priests that got to go in to that area where they would burn these incense, they would, they would choose them by lot. Literally, it was like rolling dice or, or, or the luck of the draw. That's how you got chosen to go in there. And it was an honor to be able to go in there and make this offering. Uh, commentators write that there were priests that would go their entire lives, their entire career as a priest. Uh, you, you think about it, that's 14 chances every week that they, that they are there. They would go their entire lives and never get the opportunity to make the incense offering. And, and, and they would be dejected about that because they wanted that honor to be able to go in there. Well, Zechariah gets the honor here. And so he's in making the offering of incense. Verse 11, and there appeared to him, an angel of the Lord, this would be Gabriel, we find out later, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, most commentators believe that actually two prayers were heard in this case. Zechariah's job when he went in there to make the incense offering, was to pray for the nation of Israel. And so commentators say that, in fact, later on when we, when we read about the birth of Jesus being foretold in Mary's life, that, that, that Gabriel already knew and, and, and God already knew that he was making provision for Israel by having Jesus eventually come. But John, the forerunner, had to come before him, and that's what this foretelling is about. But essentially, Gabriel is saying, we heard your corporate prayer about Israel. God has answered that. But also, your individual prayer, probably when Zechariah would go in there, he would say, I just want to add this little addendum to the prayer. Could you maybe help Elizabeth get pregnant? And Gabriel says, that prayer also is heard. And so, you're going you're gonna to have this baby, and his, and his name is going to be John. And the word John means God is gracious, which is apropos here. And, of course, he's going to be John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah, Jesus, the prophet who pray, prepares the way for the Christ. Verses 14 and 15. Gabriel continues, and he says, You will have great joy, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In other words, he's going to be a Nazarite, which is a specially consecrated person to the Lord for the purposes and the service of the Lord. And he's also, as a Nazarite, going to be someone who's involved in vows of temperance and abstinence as well. Uh, but Gabriel also says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this would have piqued Zechariah's, I mean, everything that's happening, uh, Zechariah's got uh, full attention here, but this would have piqued his, his, his interest because commentators say that the, that, that the Jews believe that for 400 years God had been inactive in Israel. That from the time of Malachi there was this inactivity going on, and so the fact that the Holy Spirit was coming would have, would have been great, great news. But think about that, 400 years, I mean, talk about waiting there were people who were born, lived, and died and, and were waiting for something that would never even happen in their lifetime. Talk about waiting. 
And it says that John is going to be great. But lest we misunderstand what this greatness is, is about, understand that he is going to be great before the Lord. See, a lot of us, a lot of us want God to make us great for, for us and for our purposes. But, but that's really a secondary thing. God is about primary things, and he, he wants us to be great for his purposes and his services. Now, it's true that consequentially, it could be that we might be great for us as well. I mean, Jesus even eventually said that John was the greatest man who ever lived. But, but God's greatest concern is that people are great for his purposes. He wants us to be people of his purposes. He wants us to lean into the first things and not the secondary things. Verses 16 and 17, Gabriel continues, And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Man, you read those two verses and you, you have to go, what is wrong with Israel? What is wrong with the people of Israel? Well, they had turned away from God. We can see that they had become disobedient, rebellious, and foolish, which is actually nothing new for the people of Israel and all peoples. I mean, they had that whole cycle of, of getting right with God and then eventually walking away from God and becoming disobedient, rebellious, and, and foolish. But also we find out here that children and fathers were estranged, and there's actually a, a double level of meaning there. It means that in families, children and fathers were estranged from each other, but also not only that, uh, the children of Israel were estranged from their spiritual, their religious leaders as well. And so uh, that was a problem. And then also, uh, just the idea that, that Gabriel mentions this, the people needed preparation. They had not prepared well. Just like we, we don't really prepare well uh, for God. We're, we're impatient and we don't wait well. Furthermore, notice John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. There's another thing that would have snapped at Zechariah. He would have heard that name and said, this is, this is big. So my son is going to be like the next Elijah. And many will be turned back. Many will repent. Not all. Notice it doesn't say all, but many will. Verses 18 through 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, he's got some questions like you and I might have some questions. He said, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I, I like the way he just calls himself an old man and then he's a little nicer about the way he describes Elizabeth. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which, were, which will be fulfilled in their time. That's some job description for Gabriel, isn't it? I stand in the presence of the Lord, and then he sends me places. That's his job. It's a pretty good job. And, and then you hear this, you hear Zechariah's doubt, and it sounds so much like another couple from Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? And, and, so, and so Zechariah is... Is, is in his doubt, he's going, look at our situation. How could this possibly happen? Some people say that, that he's asking for a sign here. That in his doubt, he's saying, give me a sign that I know this will be true. And boy, did he get one. One commentator says this, Zechariah's doubt was silenced, as was he. Now, the question becomes, for me anyway, as I read this, was Zechariah punished? Was this a punitive action? Was he being punished for his 
unbelief? And I would argue, I don't think so. He was asking for clarification, and yes, his clarification request was based in his doubt, but, but I would also argue that in his context, think about this, not being able to talk is not necessarily the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. They had no phones, and he was not a public pro proclaimer of the word of God, and so he didn't need his voice for a lot of public communication. And as we find out later, he's able to still communicate with people. It's a little bit harder. It's an inconvenience, but he's able to do that. And in fact, I would even go so far as to argue that this is actually a grace of God that is given to him that he's not able to speak. He asked for a sign and he got one. It's a grace of God. What we need to understand is that God's grace does not always come in a form that you and I recognize or that tickles us. In fact, very often God's grace has come to us in a form that kind of feels like torture. Later on as we look back and we see that discomfort and that pain and that affliction and we look at it and we say, you know what, now that I understand, now that I have a better understanding of what's going on, I see that that was actually a grace of God that was given to me, not some affliction that was purely awful. So that's a, that's a, a big deal, and, and, and reading in the rest of this narrative, it, it seems to me, as you read the narrative, that Zechariah was actually okay with this. He was content, he accepted it, and went about his business, verses 21 through 25. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, and he was unable to, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. In other words, he was communicating to them. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So uh, no tantrum, no, no, no therapy, nothing. He just went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Uh, people wonder, why did she stay in her home for five months after she knew that she had conceived well the speculation is we don't know for sure but the speculation is that um, it might take her about five months to really show that she was pregnant and so during those first five months she could still go out into the public square and people would still ridicule her because they didn't know but now now she's in her sixth month okay and so now she's going out going hey I, see <laughs> no more reproach no more ridicule and she said look god has been gracious enough to take away the reproach of my life Take away this cursedness. Take away this idea that I'm being ostracized in the, in the public square. That's all been taken away. But I want you to remember again her apparent cursedness, her barrenness was actually purposed by God. It was part of a plan. See, you and I just never know when our affliction is actually part of God's greater plan. God is sovereign in salvation and everybody gets excited about that. Yes! But he's also sovereign in our tribulation, and he's sovereign in our sanctification as well. And, and, and I, I just want to say, remember, there's a lot of other stories. There are a lot of other stories, good grammar. There are a lot of other stories in the Bible about parents who were barren for quite a while, and then they had people that became pretty significant in, in Bible lore, people like Jacob, I'm, I'm sorry, Joseph and Isaac and Samuel. So that's the first birth that's foretold, now the second, verses 26 through 27 in the sixth month that would be the sixth month of elizabeth's pregnancy the angel gabriel was sent from god to a city of galilee named nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So two words we need to talk about here, virgin and betrothed. Number one, virgin, there's some discussion about this. Not because uh, we recognize that, that a virgin becoming pregnant would be a miracle. That's not what we want to talk about. But rather, it's the question of whether or not this is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, which is a prophetic messianic verse. And that verse reads this way, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. That word in the Hebrew that's translated as virgin in the Isaiah passage is Alma, and it is more commonly understood as young unmarried maiden. If you look in some of the other translations, you will see that it, 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 it says a maiden will be uh, with a child, not, not, not a virgin. And so some people question if virgin is a proper understanding of the word, and therefore they question the fulfillment. And so you start to go down uh, these paths. However, as Hebrew experts have studied the word and its history. Uh, while the word is more generally understood as a young unmarried maiden, it is also clearly understood that part of being a young unmarried maiden is that you would be a virgin. You would be a virgin. And so Mary is no more than 15 years old here. Some people would say she's as young as 13. We're not exactly sure. But obviously she is a young unmarried but betrothed but she's a maiden, a young unmarried maiden, so she's a virgin. And that brings us to that second word, betrothed. Uh, betrothed is like our engagement when two people decide they're going to get married, but they haven't gotten married yet, and they, exchange, they do the ring thing, and they start spending a lot of money out of control, and all that stuff happens, you know? Okay? So the, being betrothed in their context is similar to our engagement in that respect, but it's very dissimilar to our engagement in that it was a higher level of commitment in their context. In other words, once you were betrothed in that context, once Mary and Joseph announced that they were betrothed, if they wanted to break that engagement, they literally had to go and get a decree of divorce in order to do that. They had to go through what a married couple would have to go through in order to, to break it up. So, so this is a serious and unique situation that we see developing because Mary getting pregnant without Joseph being involved could be a reason for them to get the decree of divorce. Now, one other thing here, Joseph is of the line and of the house of David, King David. So, two quick things here. First, we have two really impressive lines that are represented in these two stories here. In the case of baby John, we have the covenant of the priesthood. And in the case of Jesus, we have the house of royalty. And second of all, that house of royalty, that house of David, had never been in worse shape than it is right now as we get ready for the birth of Jesus. Israel had been subjugated by the, Rome, the Romans, and they were, they were colonized by the Romans, and they were occupied. And so now Gabriel goes to Mary, verse 28. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary, it says, is greatly troubled at, at this, and, and I think we can understand why this would be. A supernatural emissary of God comes and tells you that you are highly favored. Our, our natural proclivity toward suspicion 
would, would just demand that we would say, oh yeah, I'm highly favored by God? What's the catch? And the catch here is a really big catch. A virgin is going to be with a child. And I don't want us to miss the humanity of this. People joke about this, people talk about it, but, but in her context, there was some very serious humanity stuff going on. There were going to be some interesting conversations that she was going to have to have. Just two in particular, one with her father and one with Joseph. How do, who's going to buy this? Well, Joseph didn't buy it originally. We read in, in Matthew's account of this story that uh, when Joseph first heard, he decided to put her away quietly, it is said. He was going to divorce her, but do it quietly, try to protect her. But then he had his own moment of clarity one night when he was sleeping in a dream. And, and the angel said, no, you've got to go through with this. And so he decides to stay with Mary, even in the midst of what was going to be certain public ridicule and derision. And they are going to call this baby Jesus. That's Yeshua or Joshua or God saves. God with us, God's presence. So Gabriel lays it out. And Mary, of course, responds as we would. She's got questions. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And, and so there's the confirmation that we know that Mary is a, a, a virgin, but it's interesting how it's really worded in the Greek. The way it's worded is she says, how will this be since I have never known a man? And the implication, of course, is intimately. I've never known him intimately. And so the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, has been called, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now one thing we should see in Mary's question from verse 34 that's not clear in the English text, Mary did not ask this question out of distrust, but rather she asked the question out of a desire to be instructed further. She is literally looking for more instruction, more details, and Gabriel obliges. And look at verse 38, Mary's response. I will just tell you as a pastor, it would be so nice if pastoral counseling were this easy. Somebody comes in and says, Pastor, I have a question, and I give them a, a short three-sentence answer, and they say, okay, and that's the end of it, okay? That would be really cool. Here's the problem. I'm not Gabriel. I imagine that might have something to do with it. So why was it that Mary was so convinced and so soothed? Well, I, you see him in the text right there. I think three things at least. Number one, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, you and I have today. Same thing as Mary. Now, he may not do with us what he did with Mary, but he is certainly present in our lives. In fact, if you know Christ, he dwells within you. Second of all is the presence and the power of the Most High, which, by the way, you and I also have. We have that as well. And then third, the demonstration of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Most High through the miracle of Elizabeth's baby. He uses that, Gabriel uses that as proof that this is really true, that this is really going to happen. Just as you and I have the demonstration of the power of the gospel all around us with all the changed lives in this room and in our families. When people come to know Jesus, when God saves them and they get baptized and those things happen and we recognize God is at work and he is changing lives. One way to summarize these verses is this. 
No word of God should be incredible to us as long as no work of God is impossible to him. Are there works of God that are impossible to him? Should be great encouragement to all of us. And and I want to make three other quick points here before we move on. First of all, look at the emphasis that Gabriel puts on the presence of God being with Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Understand that that just as for you and me, this presence is a gift. It is a grace of God and it is not bound up in any merit that you and I have or any merit that Mary had. It is a gift. It is, it is good news. It is, it is gospel. Second of all, the fruit of her womb is going to be Jesus, Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Not again, again, not because Mary is righteous or special or more highly valued than anybody else, but simply because God is a gracious God and he decides. You notice that that Gabriel uses the term good, this is good news. Even though their lives are being turned upside down, this is good news. And again, it's not because of any meritorious achievement of Mary. And God is gracious to us, not because of any meritorious achievement of us either. And then number three, notice her response. Mary's response is a response of humility. She recognizes she has no status. She's a young maiden. Both of those words in her cultural context would have been anathema. They would have made you less than a second-class citizen. You're young, you have no value, and you're a woman, you have no value. That's the way it is. She even later on in her song that she sings that we're going to celebrate and talk about tomorrow night at the Christmas Eve services, Mary's Magnificat, even there she starts right out by saying, I can't believe, God, that you would do this. You would look upon somebody with such a humble estate. Mary recognizes that she is a nobody. Maybe it's easier when you have no status to be humble. Isn't it amazing how education, money, talent, power, success, and position can make humility a very difficult pill for some of us to swallow. And, And by the way, that is not your pastor giving you an excuse, if you have any of those things, to be proud. You can't walk out of here and go, well, it's okay that I'm not humble. Frank said it's okay. I'm very talented. I'm just letting you know that it's an obstacle to be aware of. It's an obstacle to be aware of. And from, and from Mary's humility comes this observation from one commentator. Eve was the mother of humanity. Mary is the mother of the Savior of humanity. Mary is a better Eve. Now, understand, she is not God, she is not divine, she is not sinless, but she was used by God in a way that nobody else has been or was or is. And and we need to understand that that favor is about God, it is not about Mary. All right, those last few verses that Chad read for us, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste, in other words, she went quickly, into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That would be John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? There's another statement of humility by Elizabeth. For behold, when, she, when, he, when the sound of, you, of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken, of, uh, what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, uh, she believed the things in verses 35 through 38 that Gabriel told her. 
And Mary has a response to this encounter that, like I said, we're going to look at tomorrow night, the Magnificat. But now, as we kind of start to wrap up, I want you to see three things that are present in this text that you and I struggle with today, that, that we really do have struggles with. And, and especially within the context of Advent, because Advent is about these three things very strongly. The idea of waiting, the idea of repentance, and the idea of contentment. Let's talk first about waiting. That's the one we'll spend the most time on. You look back at verses 5 through 7, and you see two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who understand what it means to wait. Zechariah and Elizabeth were people who were righteous and walked blamelessly, yet it took years for their dream of having a child to come true. And here's the kicker. It's not like anybody ever told them that they would eventually have a child. It was just going to be a long wait. The reality is, is that they never knew if they were ever going to have a child. They never knew if the wait would be over. And yet they waited well. The fact that they had this affliction did not change how they waited. They walked blamelessly and were righteous. Can you and I say that when we get impatient in our waiting that we are righteous and we walk blamelessly? Fact is, waiting is one of the greatest tests that you and I will ever have when it comes to our faith. And we usually fail this test miserably. We do not wait well. Waiting and impatience almost always drives us to a place very quickly where we give up on God and we take matters into our own hands and then sin starts to come. And we exalt counterfeit gods. We exalt the false gods that, that we turn to in these times that might help us in the short term just a little bit, but in the long term always, always, always let us down. Understand, false gods never fail to fail. Zechariah and Elizabeth had learned how to wait and they and they didn't do it under their own power or through some self-motivation, you-can-do-it waiting program that they downloaded from the internet. They waited in faith. They waited for God's plan, even when they knew that God's plan might not ever involve them the way it did. There was no guarantee that it would. And thank God that they did wait well, because by waiting well, they were ready for the blessing when it did come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his Advent sermons, constantly pointed out the obvious about the human condition. We do not wait well. But during those sermons, he also did everything he could to point out the not-so-obvious, but the most important part of waiting, that blessing comes to those who wait. And if you decide not to wait, you're going to miss the blessing. Don't expect God's blessing to come into your life if you abandon the wait and go turn to your counterfeit gods. So here's the challenge. Research has actually shown this. Uh, most of us live our lives by the subconscious credo that you and I will accept long-term pain and cost in virtually all areas of our lives, relationships, the workplace, uh, health care. We will willingly, gladly accept long-term pain and cost in those areas of our lives as long as that long-term pain and cost bring us short-term peace and pleasure. It's known as the pleasure principle. Given any set of circumstances, we will always default to the uh, behavior that will give us uh, the least amount of suffering and the most potential for pleasure. We will never go through that short-term suffering. We just, we just aren't conditioned that way. Josh Prather asked me for an example after the first year. So give me an, give me an example. I, here's one. Here's an easy one. Everybody's number one favorite strategy in conflict is avoidance. That's the pleasure principle at work. We avoid conflict because it'll give us some short-term, mm, not really pleasure, but at least we don't have to suffer, okay? 
But when you avoid conflict, the long-term pain and cost is often atrocious. So that's the pleasure principle. That's the credo we live by. And God exhorts us not to live by that credo. It is true. I've mentioned this before. It is true what Richard Mao writes. We serve a slow God. But God is slow because he's much more interested in shaping us and preparing us than, for, than, than, than in our um, immediate gratification and, and pleasure and, and comfort. He wants us to be people with a purpose. And by the way, isn't it good that we serve a slow and patient God when it comes to our sin? I cannot tell you how often I'll be talking to somebody about this and I'll say, oh, they'll say, I want God to move faster. And I'll say, okay, he's going to start with our sin. How about that? Ooh, two-sided coin there. So Advent is about waiting and it's about waiting well and it's about waiting on God. 2,100 years ago, it was about waiting for the Messiah Today, it's about waiting for Jesus to come again. But again, today, it's also about waiting specifically and individually in our own lives about particular things that are challenging us and giving us trials right now. Things that we don't want to wait on, but we do need to press into God for. I've got a friend who's got two sons. Uh, they're, they're in their mid to early 20s. He's got a tremendously good relationship with one of his sons and the other son he is estranged from. Has not spoken to him in 10 years, though he has tried. And I've been walking with him through this entire shadow of death, this entire dark time, this entire wilderness. And I will tell you that, that while he's been tempted to do impatient and foolish and sinful things to alleviate the weight. He has decided, based on the testimony of God's people that we see here in, in Scripture, he has decided to wait well, to wait in faith, and to wait on God. Is it painful? Yes. Is it easy? No. But that's what he's leaning into. So that's waiting. Second of all, repentance. Again, in our text, you see it in verses 16 and 17 that there is a need for the people of Israel. They have not waited well. And as a result, they've become disobedient and foolish and rebellious and impatient. And they were not interested in, in the patience and the preparation that God had called them to. So they've turned away from God and they've turned toward themselves. They've curved in on themselves. They've turned to, to their false gods, to their, their secondary things. But God is going to use John and Jesus to call them back, to turn them around. They need repentance. And that, that word that's used in this passage that, that I'm using for repentance is not metanoia. It's not the idea of turning from a specific sin and away from that sin. But rather, it's, it, it's turning from the things that have been giving you comfort and turning back to God. In general, just turning back to God. Repentance in the context of Advent is about turning to God when we wait and when we prepare. And when the waiting gets, uh, gets tough, it is just very natural for us to turn to something other than God, especially when it seems like he is silent and absent as we wait. So God calls us to repentance, calls us to turn from what we have replaced him with and turn back to him, the one true God. Most of the time, the challenge is that we're so oblivious to this need that God has to do something big in our lives to get our attention or he has to send somebody like John into our lives to get our attention. Have you noticed that? And so we, we see 
we see events that are tragic in our lives and, and, and we wonder why those things happen, but very often it's those tragic events that cause us to stop short and turn away from the things that we have been putting our confidence in and turn back to God. Sometimes God will send somebody into our life. It could be somebody that we've known for a while or it could be a new person and use them like John the Baptist and, and say, I am calling you back to God. And they have that tough conversation with you and point you to the right way because we are oblivious. Thomas Carlyle once wrote this, Of all acts of men, repentance is the most divine. The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. So the question today is, what is it that we need to turn from? So waiting and repentance, finally contentment. Certainly it should go without saying that the ability to wait well and the ability to be content uh, and, the, and the ability to repent humbly those inabilities would feed right into a lack of contentment. Do you notice in this narrative that these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, they had their lives completely turned upside down, and yet they were content. They accepted their lot in life. Y yeah, they asked questions, but there were no tantrums and no rebellion. They slid satisfactorily into whatever it is that God had for them. There's three things that I think would be helpful for us to know about contentment. First of all, a lack of contentment is almost always a control issue. We struggle with contentment because we know that if we're going to be content, we have to give up control. Second of all, contentment is not antithetical to ambition or hard work. That's not it at all. But contentment is actually the ability to say at the end of the day, after you have worked hard, after you've had some ambition, to be able to stop and look around and be satisfied with who you are, what you have, where you are, and who you are with. That's contentment. It's not passiveness. You still go out there. It's just at the end of the day, you're, you're satisfied. And then third, contentment is dependent on recognizing God's presence in your life. Again, if you notice in our narrative, the one common denominator is how Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and Mary rested in God's presence. They rested in his presence. When Paul talks about contentment in both Philippians and in 2 Timothy, it's always in the context of recognizing what God is doing in his life, God's presence in his life. You and I will never experience contentment without realizing the presence of God in our lives. Advent, it's the announcement and preparation that Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. Therefore, it's a call to contentment. And it's also a call to repentance and to waiting. I want to close by, by showing you why the ability to wait well, a willingness to humbly repent, and finally, the ability to accept God's presence, which leads to contentment, why these three things are very important, and as theological as they may be, they can be applied to something in our world that is pretty important. My first time through college, I majored in economics. And, and let me just say that from that perspective, based on my education, some of you have been in denial about this. Some of you would rather ignore this. But from my perspective, from the perspective of economics, the national debt is a really big problem. Bigger than you, some of you even realize. And I know I'm inviting emails when I say this, but this facade of what uh, the, these guys are arguing and debating over in Washington about keeping us from going over the fiscal cliff, the reality of, is, of it is, is that that's all just window dressing. Long term, it's not going to do us any good. It's not going to do us any good until there's some pain involved. I'm not into pain. I am very pain averse, but I also recognize the serious nature 
of our $16 trillion in debt. Oh, by the way, now it just went to more. And again, and again, and again. See, most of us, though, I'm not going to talk about our debt from an economic perspective. Most of us believe it's an economic problem or a political problem or a governmental problem. And yes, while there are aspects of that, I would argue that at, at its core, it really isn't any of those things. Rather, it is a theological and a moral problem. Do you realize that our $16 trillion national debt is a symptom of our nation's collective inability to wait well, our collective refusal to turn away from a clearly unbiblical and immoral monetary policy, and our selfish and out-of-control discontent? That's what our $16 trillion is about. It's true. If we handled monetary policy in a biblical way, we would not be in the predicament that we are in. And it is a very dire, serious, grim predicament. Scripture says repeatedly, over and over, that the borrower is always a slave to the lender. We are a nation of slaves. Merry Christmas. And that's not just true on a national and corporate level, but it's true on an individual as well, a level as well. Here's what I'm saying. All of us need to ask ourselves this question. As a result of our personal inability to wait well, our, our refusal to repent, and our out-of-control discontent that we have decided to give into, what is it that we're a slave to? And if you're not a slave to Jesus Christ, you're in big trouble. You're going to be a slave to something. It should be Jesus. Paul says he is a slave, a doulos of Christ. And I know, I know, I know, I know. I have the really bad taste to bring this up during the happy holiday season. But if not now, when? Is there really a good time to bring this up? Advent is about waiting, repentance, and contentment. There's no better time to bring it up because maybe, just maybe, just like he did 2,100 years ago, God wants us to use this season to call us back to his magnificent, glorious, and gracious presence i'm not interested in, re in redemption arcadia joining together banding together and doing something about the national debt that's not what this is about but i am interested in rallying arcadia to understand that god is with us he is alive and he is coming again and he is our only hope in these challenging times and if we don't press into him, we have nothing of value left to press into. It is only in Christ that you and I will have the power and the strength to wait well, to repent, and to be content. Thank God he came. So, Merry Christmas. We'll see you tomorrow night at 5 and 9. Let me pray. God, as challenging as this is, we know that it's true. And we know that it's true because you've revealed to us who you are through your word and through your son. And we are thankful for that great gift. So God, now as, as, as we are challenged today, I pray that we would, we would have the strength by the power of your resurrected son, by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that we would lean into who you are. We would embrace your presence and the call that we have from you to love you would be taken seriously, to rest in you. God, we've got maybe 48 hours to go. Let it be a time of, of resting and of waiting well, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.